Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this week's episode, Roger is joined by naval expert Dr. Jerry Hendricks. Jerry is a vice president of the Telmos Group and a retired Navy captain. Before joining Telmos, he served in several senior staff positions in the Pentagon and as the director of the defense program at the Center for a New American Security. While on active duty, He served as a naval flight officer flying P-3C Orion aircraft. He recently published a book titled To Provide and Maintain a Navy, Why Naval Primacy is America's First Best Strategy. Roger and Jerry discuss the book, Reagan's work to build up the Navy, and why we need to reinvest in our fleets today. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. Dr. Jerry Hendricks, welcome to the show. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, lot to cover today. Uh, excited to discuss your book, To Provide and Maintain a Navy. A um, lot of uh, uh, important conversations coming out of, of that publication. But just for our viewers and listeners, a little more about your background. You're a retired U.S. Navy captain, uh, a naval aviator. Uh, give us a little glimpse into your career as uh, in the Navy? So I was uh, actually commissioned in 1988 out of the ROTC program at Purdue University. I uh, was commissioned under President Reagan actually in May of 88, the last commissioning class of his administration. Part of, uh, we were all recruited as part of the 600 ship Navy buildup. So I had a very large class at Purdue University. And then I was selected for Naval Aviation Training, went to Pensacola, Florida. Uh, went from there into uh, long-range navigation, actually was settled into the P-3 uh, Orion community doing anti-submarine warfare and, uh, and learned how to track submarines, sort of cut my teeth at the end of the Cold War, uh, going up against uh, Soviet Union submarines in the North Atlantic and in the Mediterranean. And then uh, my career evolved, of course, after the end of the Cold War, uh, about halfway through my career, 9-11 occurred. And I sort of transitioned out of uh, active aviation into strategic issues, was working for the CNO um, on his executive panel doing long range strategy, looking at China, even at that time in 2001. And then also went on uh, to work for the Secretary of the Navy for Mr. Andrew Marshall in the Office of Net Assessment, and then finished out my career uh, kind of as a payback for having gotten my PhD. I I served uh, my last two years as the Director of Naval History. So it was a great chance to kind of do my hobby on, on for the last two years on active duty, trying to preserve and promote the Navy's history. So, uh, so that was it. Operational uh, so, for the first so half. Warrior and, and scholar. Bookends uh, uh, your your career. Um, it was just a glimpse. Uh, we're at the end of the Cold War, and there you are uh, in a P three high above the ocean, tracking submarines. Uh, What's that like? What's going through your head when you're when you're you're up there in the sky? It was one of the best. Uh, I always tell my my children today it was the best video game I ever played. In but it was in a very real sense in that 
Uh, I was a junior lieutenant, uh, less than uh, 20, <clears throat> I was 25 years old, and I'm going up against a seasoned Soviet submarine captain who had a lot of experience. My job was to keep him localized, to maintain track on him, that if something went bad, uh, that we could maintain an attack solution on him. So, you know, the Cold War was a tenuous time, and there were tenuous times right at the end. There was, I was airborne on a cold pattern actually when there was the attempted coup against Gorbachev. And right. so we, we received word through the BBC actually that Gorbachev had been sequestered uh, by the Soviet army and that that was the word. And, and we're sitting on top of one of their submarines. So we don't know which way things are gonna break. So there was a very real sense of danger, uh, but that, that sense of danger sort of permeated most of my young life. The, you know, the Cold War, the whole duck and cover aspect of, of education, that, that occurred with me. I was born in 1966, started school in 1971, and, and the Cold War was part of it. So it was good to be there at the end and to participate in, in something that I think was very important. It was the defining issue of my young life, winning the Cold War. You know, uh, we'll talk about great power competition, Russia's resurgence, of course, China as our near peer uh, competitor and, and as a Cold Warrior, there are lessons to be learned. It's obviously not apples to apples, yeah. But but certainly important comparisons. But before we go there and get all serious, what did Top Gun miss by focusing the F fourteen and not the P three pilot <laughs> tracking those subs? You know, I I was a midshipman. I was on my Corcher Med cruise uh, during college when Top Gun came out, and and it was one of those defining moments. If you did not want to be a naval aviator before Top Gun came out, <laughs> you certainly wanted to be a naval aviator after Top Gun came out. Uh, it, it caused a huge rush towards the naval aviation community. All of us wanted to wear, uh, you know, white uniforms and and meet really uh, smart and uh, and good-looking women. That was sort of the, our approach at that time. Uh, that was what Top Gun taught us. Uh, but you know, fortunately, not all of us uh, could go F-14s, and in fact, I got to go P-3s. And for me as a Naval flight officer, uh, essentially the goose in the back seat, in the P3 community, I was the mission commander. So it was very much a, a place where if you were a, a flight officer who was interested in the technology and the systems and the sensors and the weapons, it was a really great place to be. But I, I will tell you, I, I cannot watch the, uh, the previews now of Top Gun 2, uh, the Maverick movie, that's been now thrice delayed because of COVID. I cannot watch that without feeling young. Uh, there's, there's a sense of taking me back to this, this time when I was in college still, and, and the entire future in the Navy was ahead of me. And it's kind of interesting to see this, uh, this, these previews and to think, oh, you know, that, that's amazing. It, it does make me feel young again. Just in there, I see a little movie critic in you, an opportunity here perhaps, you know, <laughs> to profile the life of Goose and the importance as opposed to, you know, Maverick sitting in the front seat. But we'll, we'll have to get to that another time. Some other time. <laughs> um, well, let's jump in to uh, the heart of, of your book again, to provide and maintain a Navy. Uh, why Naval Primacy is America's first best strategy. Explain why you need to write this book. Uh, why is it that you believe America's Navy uh, has been almost a linchpin for America's growth and security? Uh, our uh, economy and, 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 and not just the United States, but, but the entire globe? Well, I mean, I, I, in many ways, I've been writing this book for the better part of the last 15 years. It was just in smaller and smaller segments in, in op-eds or in essays in various different places. And it, 
it occurred to me that I'd never put it all together in one place to really create this, this single coherent argument that was readable and accessible. So I sat down once COVID broke out essentially a, a year ago in the spring, and I'd recovered these three hours a day when I wasn't driving or sitting on the metro going into DC. I was like, what do I do with this time? And so I, I started to write. And I actually wrote a, a book that was twice as long as this. So this is not the first draft that eventually came out. I wanted to boil it down and distill it. I wanted to make it something that was accessible to people in what we would call flyover country, places where I came from in Indiana. And I wanted to make sure that they understood the importance of sea power in our history and, and in their lives. And so I kind of wanted to go back to the beginning. We all tend to talk today about numbers, whether it's 355 ships or whether it was Reagan 600 ships or some of the arguments that came out of the last administration of 400 to 500 ships. And it's like, I wanted to start and say why those numbers matter. What was the philosophical background behind those numbers? And so I want to get into the concept of the notion of the free sea and how it's foundational really in the enlightenment. And then of course the enlightenment is foundational in the founding of the United States. We are a nation that grew out of that. And so I wanted to tie this all together in sort of a coherent stream, and then also point out that there was an aspect of this that you know we all think of the sea as free and the sea as safe today, but we very seldom understand that that's a very recent phenomenon. It's really only been that way over the last 70 years. So I wanted to do the history leading up to that to make sure everyone understood that the sea used to be fraught with danger and turmoil, and it's only because of the dominance of the United States Navy in the last 70 years that, that we've found peace. And you do a great job capturing that history, but also making the history matter today. I mean, talk a little bit about how peacetime presence of the U.S. Navy is the guarantor of the economies of the world in the terms yeah. of really to trade and 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 ship goods from one part of the world to another, and 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 what the Navy does for those choke points. You know, be it the Suez Canal, Straits Malaga, elsewhere across the world. Just give us a little insight into, into today why it matters so much. Well, if you look at the growth of the global domestic product over the last 70 years, you really get this sense of the exponential growth of the global economy. And so it's, it's the fastest rise in global economic production in the history of mankind. And as I said, it really is exponential in that same period of time this period of time that the U.S. Navy is both uh, monitoring the ports where resources are leaving and also where they're arriving. Essentially, if you look at every main sea line of communication, and there's a lot of maps that sort of lay down the ship tracks. This is for the listener, sea line of communication. That sounds kind of, you know, wonkish. What does that mean? Well, it means where ships start and when they end, you know, and, and the, the passage of ships is determined by geography. So you mentioned the Strait of Hormuz or the Arabian Gulf. These are choke points which are established or Suez Canal that a lot of ships have to pass through to be able to move uh, goods and services uh, quickly and efficiently around the globe. So you always want to go with your shortest, most time efficient route. That's why places like the Panama Canal and the Suez Canal matter because if you don't get through Suez, as we recently found out with when the Ever Given uh, grounded uh, in the Suez Canal, we started to reroute ships around South Africa again. That adds as much as three weeks to the transit time 
of some of these goods and services or oil or natural gas. It so was shocking, important. by the way, uh, to, just to quickly interrupt, you mentioned what happened in, in the Suez Canal uh, just uh, uh, a couple mo months or so ago, how the infrastructure supported, meaning just like this, 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 this one, albeit huge ship gets stuck and there aren't any grand solutions just to fix it. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of pretty basic and time consuming. And as you note, had a huge impact on, on the global economy. Yeah, the, you know, the Suez Canal is unique in the sense it's, it's not a two-lane highway. You know, <laughs> we, we pass a, a series of ships through going north at one part of the day. And then you know, someone comes out with a flag and says, stop. You know, it's all the oncoming traffic. And then we pass everything going south. So it was created you know, over a century ago. And essentially, it's a one-lane road. Uh, and it's a very narrow road. Uh, they are looking now at making investments on essentially making it two-lane. Uh, but the fact is, is it's, a, it's, it's the quintessential choke point. When we talk about the importance of choke points, um, it really came home with the Ever Givens grounding and just what a disruption it was to global markets and not just on oil and natural gas. There were other container, I mean, Ever Given itself is a container ship, it's moving merchandise. And so you find places like that and you realize how important it is to maintain stability and security in those areas so that free trade can move freely. And that really is the mission of the Navy. Well, okay, so give me the, give me the best case. Why is it that a US Navy uh, is responsible for or should be that guarantor and how does it guarantee it? Mere presence, just because we have, you know, the fifth fleet or the sixth fleet, you know, the Med or in the Gulf, um, does that do so much to give um, people in the commercial shipping world confidence that they can deliver their goods from point A to point B? It absolutely does. Uh, and essentially it's because of the rules and norms that the United States and its Navy have essentially established and now we've maintained you know, low these 70 years. The British did precede us and there was a lot of free trade and they began to sort of build that global network. Uh, but when the, the British sort of went into decline, we were in a position to step up. It's important to understand at the end of World War II, the United States Navy had over 6,000 ships. And so, and, and no one else was even close. The British were at like 1,800 ships, but they quickly began to sell them off as they were dealing with their own economic problems. But we had this tremendous Navy. So we were able to establish these, these rules of a free sea, free trade, free movement across the oceans to make sure that trade could go you know, from positions where goods were, were plentiful and cheap to place where they were scarce and, and could be sold at a profit. And the US Navy was essentially there to write those rules and norms and codify them in sort of international law. And we've been doing that for 70 years, so much to the point that it just has become assumed. And this is another reason why I wrote the book was to kind of step back and say, these things that you just assume are out there and have always have been, they weren't. We had to establish this. This goes to actually, you know, uh, you know, my my favorite Reagan quote, which is, you know, freedom. Oh, 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 is you're, you're, you're jumping into the lightning round. You're well, not off the hook. You're going to have to do it later. But it's applicable. So, <laughs> you know, when Reagan said that freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction, well, so are all these rules and norms that we've worked so hard to build. So, if the U.S. Navy is not present, as does not maintain its present in a persistent basis, you quickly begin to see those rules and norms begin to roll back. And I'll use this as an example. Mm -hmm. In 2012, uh, we stopped doing frequent 
freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea. And what happened? The Chinese began to build the four artificial islands. If you are not there persistently to uphold the things you believe in, then others will pressure you and attempt to subvert uh, essentially those rules. I want to go in a minute to how we got to that point, the investments that were made, and particularly talk about the 1980s, Sec former Secretary of Navy John Lehman wrote the intro to your book and get there in just a moment. But here we are, Dr. Jerry Hendricks of the state of Indiana, um, you know, not exactly uh, the person who presents as the EU diplomat. And you're talking <laughs> to us right now on the Reaganism podcast about the rules-based international order. Have you left your roots of Indiana or do those words actually mean something that's relevant to your family and friends that live in middle America? You know, uh, it's funny you say that. So my, you know, my stepdad is a farmer. He's still on the family farm in Indiana. Um, my mom, who is, uh, has passed away, uh, she worked at Walmart. And one of the things that, you know, we would always have conversations, and yes, we actually did have conversations like this, is that if you like Walmart, if you like Costco, if you like going to any of the wholesale clubs, then you love the United States Navy, or at least you should. Because if you want to look at that concept of free trade and free markets, then that is essentially guaranteed by the United States Navy. If you like your big box store, those big boxes tend to come from overseas. They come across the world's oceans. You know, today trade, uh, you know, the global uh, economy, it's, it's like 80% by volume and 70% by value comes across the sea. And so if you're in favor of those things, which, which I am because I'm, I'm a conservative from Indiana and grew up in, in a very conservative atmosphere, uh, then, then in fact, you're in favor of free trade. Now, there are aspects about fair trade that we can get into, whether it's a level playing field. But the fact is, is those quote unquote global international norms that we talk about, a lot of those were established by us, by good American common sense. And so I don't see it as being outside of sort of my upbringing to talk about them as long as they still make common sense uh, or have common sense meanings to America. Well, we'll talk about um, those goods coming from elsewhere around the world, and particularly we'll talk about China and, and the Navy's role in addressing the challenge and competition with China. But these rules-based order that advantage the United States uh, and advantage our economic prosperity, you know, came from from this this hard work from the time that you know you entered the Navy in the years prior. So much of the focus when people discuss the Navy, particularly in the nation's capital and the halls of Congress and the Pentagon, it's about ship numbers. And mm -hmm. uh, Secretary of the Navy, former Secretary of the Navy, John Lehman was famous for the 600 ship Navy. Previous administration, as you referenced, was, was trying to knock on you know, 400 plus navies. Right now we're, we're an administration where they're skeptical of approaching uh, the Navy through lens of how many ships. Jerry, why should we care about the number of ships? Why does that matter here? Well, it matters because essentially it's the size of the Navy that guarantees the United States position in the world. Uh, and when I say that, um, it, it, there's a math argument and there's a philosophy argument. So there are 18 maritime regions of the world where the United States has defined national interests. These have built up since the end of World War II and certainly since the end of the Cold War, where we wanna maintain sort of these rules that we've established they are to our interests, which is why we've established them. If you're going to actually provide naval presence in a persistent way in those 18 maritime regions, 
then you have to have a fleet of sufficient size. For every ship forward, generally it takes either one to four ships to keep one ship forward. And so that's what generates your numbers. Um, the point here is that it, the United States, because we are a global power, we actually have to be out and about globally. For instance, if we were to allow China to create a sphere of influence in the Western Pacific, or Russia to carve out a sphere of influence in the Arctic, and where we just say, well, that's yours, and we're going to let you sort of rule within that. You'll set the rules within that, and that's okay. That sort of makes a lie of all the sacrifice that we've made over the last seven years to create a global system. Once one sphere is created, other spheres, there's an excuse for other spheres to come forward and be created. And that is inherently destabilizing. That's something that history has taught us over and over again. Multiple influence are destabilizing and they ultimately lead to war. We want to avoid war. We like a very stable world uh, because it provides for freedom and provides for free trade. And those are the sort of the core values of the United States, individual liberty and free trade. So the vacuum that may be left from the U.S. not having this consistent presence will be filled, according to you, in the Arctic, Russia, uh, the Pacific, West Pacific would be China, not a friendly, free nation. I mean, is that is that the essence of of, of one of the of why we need to continue to have that presence in a Navy of a size sufficient to be present in all these places? Absolutely. And, and it's important to understand that both China and Russia historically are authoritarian autocratic governments. They're very, um, they're very concerned about ideas of freedom making its way into their nations or even brushing up against their nations because they recognize that our concepts of individual liberty and freedom are destabilizing to them politically at home. So they're both buffer countries. They both have added smaller and smaller countries around them to create buffer zones. And they always say, well, I just need some space so I can feel secure. Well, that space is at the expense of the Baltics, or it's at the expense of Taiwan in this case. They just want that security. And they say, if we give them that, then they'll, they'll, leave, they'll, they'll feel secure and they'll be okay. The point is, is historically over millennia, they have built up these buffer zones. We simply cannot allow that to encroach upon the areas of freedom that we've worked so hard to create around the world. And, and which we benefit from, and we can't rely on benefiting from it if, if, if China or Russia, of course, uh, fill, that, fill that space. Let me play the uh, technologist on you for a second. What about the point of view that says, you don't need 600 ships, you don't need 400, you don't even need 300 ships, right? What you need is just super uh, effective and, and, and upgraded ships that uh, can respond to the technology challenges of today. Put differently, let's pick on the aircraft carrier. Why should we be spending billions of dollars on a, on a huge platform that's a sitting duck uh, for some of the advanced missile technologies that the Chinese possess? That's not doing anything for us except kind of creating a cost imposing strategy that benefits the Chinese and hurts us. So talk, talk, talk about some of those concerns about investing in a, in a large uh, ship Navy. So there's two, you just made two points there. One goes to um, the idea that a smaller Navy that's made up of more effective, more capable ships uh, could be part of a solution. The, the, the answer to that is that the most effective ship in the world can only be one place at a time. And the US has global interests where, which require us 
uh, to maintain about 100 ships forward deployed at any given moment in order to uphold those interests. Which is 50 so, less than the Cold War, right? I mean, you, in your book, you talk about you needed 150 to be present during the Cold War. That's and right. So we're, we're, we're already, the average that we're down to now is about 108. Uh, here recently, we've been down to as much around 75. Uh, at, during the Cold War, we had 150 ships out in any given moment to sort of uphold all of this. And I'm willing to make, I'm willing to accept that perhaps we had a surplus of ships and so we had more ships out than we needed in the Cold War. But the fact is, is I think that we really need about 120 ships out at any given moment. And so you'd start working that math back and that really generates you around a 450 ship fleet in order to generate that number on any given day. So that's the problem with the idea of the highly complex, highly technical, high-end fleet is that it cannot be all the places uh, that we need it to be. And there is no such thing as virtual presence in the world. Uh, the Chinese and the Russians will quickly make a lie of that type of an approach uh, to the world. On the other side, which is where you get at the idea of the aircraft carriers and their importance. You know, the United States is the only nation in the world that has super carriers um, you know, that operate on the, at the level that we do. Yes, the British now have the Queen Elizabeth uh, and the French have the Charles de Gaulle. Uh, those are great carriers. They're not super carriers. And, and it's important to understand the, the difference between a, a short takeoff vertical landing carrier like the Queen Elizabeth and the Cato bar or the catapult and arresting gear carriers. Tell me, what, tell me what's super about the super carrier. Well, I mean, the super carriers created as a concept out of the 1950s when the Navy was tasked to begin developing a capacity to, to launch uh, bombers that were, you know, aircraft large enough to carry a nuclear weapon and go deep inside the Soviet Union. And so in order to do that, you know, it's physics, you need a certain amount of distance to take a large 70,000 pound airplane off. You also need a large distance in order to capture that when it comes back on board. That generated an aircraft carrier requirement that was about a thousand feet long. And we built the Forrestal class aircraft carriers in the 50s to do that. That is a supercarrier, something that can launch a large 70,000 pound airplane, have it fly a thousand miles away, drop its weapon, and then come back and land on that carrier. No other nation in the world has ever done that um, to this day. Uh, and it's something that we uniquely have the ability of. And in, by, in fact, by law, we're, we're supposed to keep 11 of them around at any given time. During President Reagan's time, we actually had 15 carrier strike groups and supercarriers in the fleet during at the height of the Cold War. The problem that we have today is that we do have 11 aircraft carriers, but we do not have sufficient numbers of escort vessels in order to go and escort those carriers and defend them, whether it's from missiles or whether, and that's ballistic missiles as well as cruise missiles, or whether it's from other surface ships or from submarines. When during the Reagan administration, we actually had two cruisers four destroyers, two frigates, and two fast attack submarines that escorted every carrier. We cannot even come close to those numbers today. It's uh, The fleet is so much smaller at 296 uh, ships that we're never able to fully fill out a full carrier strike group the way that we did in the past. So responding to critics, I'm anticipating your argument who would say, hey, um, China can take out these carriers. We can't have, you know, in the case of you know, we can't even, uh, if there's a situation in Taiwan, we wouldn't be able to bring the carrier to support because it's a sitting duck from the Chinese missile threat. Is your response, yes, but the problem isn't the carrier, the problem is we don't have the right escort vessels? No, actually the problem isn't the carrier, the problem is the carrier air wing. 
So like I said, supercarriers were created to launch a large airplane that could fly over a thousand miles. Today, the carrier air wing, uh, the average unrefueled range of the air wing is around 550 uh, nautical miles. So after the Cold War, uh, we actually divested of a lot of the older long range aircraft. The A3 Sky Warrior went away, then the A6 Intruder. The Sky Warrior could actually fly out to about 15 to 1800 nautical miles. The A6 could fly out to 1,000 nautical miles. The F-14 had a range of 800 nautical miles. And then we had organic refueling tankers as part of the air wing. All that's gone away today. If we really wanted the carrier to remain relevant in the modern warfare environment so that we could stand outside of the range of Chinese weapons and yet still hit them, we would actually invest in a new carrier air wing, probably that emphasizes unmanned combat aerial vehicles that could fly these long distances. That's the investment we should be looking so, at. So let's let's talk about that. I, I you know, I, I, you didn't say, but it seems like the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter, that gets a lot of attention. The carrier version, I guess, is not going deep enough uh, yeah. uh, to advance the carrier. Uh, take that point. But yeah, we have a mutual friend, Chris Bose. He's been on this yeah. um, show, wrote another uh, good book, and you know, his his critique would be just that. You know, we don't need these large carriers. We can have smaller carriers, and we should uh, emphasize. Um, you know, unmanned systems uh, coming off the carrier and you get all that, you know, kind of sci-fi swarming, huge, you know, Star Wars-like numbers of, of, plaf of, 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 you know, unmanned systems flying into whatever the target is, China or something else. Um, that's where we should invest and not the super carrier. Well, I, I actually wrote an article in uh, National Review last year, it was in their print edition, uh, it was titled The Aircraft Carrier We Need which actually proposed building uh, something that was about the size of our Midway carrier, Midway class carriers, um, but tailoring- What's Midway class carrier? So the Midway was the last large carrier built by the United States Navy during World War II. It came in at around 55,000 tons in displacement. It actually grew in the years afterwards as we added systems to it to around 60,000 tons. Uh, but the Midway itself actually saw service up through Operation Desert Storm in 1991, the first major campaign that I went, went into uh, in a wartime environment. And it actually was one of the leading carriers supplies, uh, supplying sorties for Operation Desert Storm uh, at, during that time. So it was still a very relevant carrier. The idea of having a smaller carrier that's more tailored uh, to unmanned combat aerial systems. So Perhaps the hangar bay does not need to be as tall because UCABs can be shorter from wheels to the top of their of their of their uh, their aileron tips or, or their tail tips, and so you can tailor the airplane around the current technology rather than building carriers based upon legacy systems. So my my thought was is to build sort of this medium sized aircraft carrier, uh, which is by the way something that Secretary Lehman looked at very seriously even during the Reagan administration of sort of going back and making greater use of some of the Essex-class aircraft carriers, which were World War II carriers that were still in the reserves at that time. Jerry, so do you, do you think that um, that proposal is something that the technologists and the folks who are looking to move away from uh, the carriers of today would consider, or is it an all-or-nothing proposition uh, in terms of the way the debate's playing out? There is a lot of build-up uh, bureaucratic support for continuing to build larger and larger uh, supercarriers. Um, it would take some really strong civilian leadership to be able to impose this level of change. It would take, you know, and I'll, I'll just say it, it would take John Lehman level 
of influence within an administration, not just within Department of Defense, but layman's unique ability to kind of get around resistance within DOD, go direct to the White House and have President Reagan issue a public statement in support of some of his policies, which he did more than once. Oh, yeah. It would well, take uh, that level of bureaucratic maneuvering. OK, well, uh, yeah, certainly some great uh, Reagan history there, which we don't have time for. Um, the one on Rickover is, 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 is a classic. Uh, Let's go to another part of your book that no doubt uh, ruffles some feathers, particularly your uh, brothers and sisters and the other military services. Uh, you are critical of those who are seeking uh, to uh, grow the army, for example, and view the army and land forces as uh, the key capability to addressing today's national security, national defense challenges. Uh, take us through that argument, and I'm going to debate it with you. All right. So, uh, first of all, you know, I have full admiration for my Army brethren and sisters. I mean, the sacrifice that they have borne for the last 20 years since 9-11 in, in our land wars in Afghanistan and Iraq is nothing less than heroic. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is we have to look at the geostrategic situation where we are today and, and, there's, there's, uh, and, and the challenges uh, that we are facing. The, the uh, competitors that we face, uh, specifically with China as the lead competitor, that is an Asian Pacific, largely Pacific scenario. And so if you start looking at the forces that you're going to require to be able to take on that particular challenge, that leads you uh, looking at those forces that compete, quote unquote, in the commons, the global commons, whether that's the sea or whether it's air, whether it's cyberspace or whether it's space. Both China and Russia are tending to want to compete. They want to offshore this competition. They don't want it to be on land. They want it to be in these global commons. And so if we did this the right way, if we actually went back, and, and let's just look at the last time that someone had to sort of reprioritize Department of Defense spending, that occurred uh, during the Eisenhower administration, where Dwight Eisenhower, five-star General Eisenhower as president, went and significantly cut the United States Army, his own service, right. in order to prioritize technological change and investment in the Air Force and in the Navy. It was because of Eisenhower's reprioritization that we were able to get a nuclear-powered Navy, and we were able to get an extensive bomber force and ICBM force. So in these times of, of fiscal constraint, which I'm not sure, you know, first of all, I'm not an arguer for cutting defense spending, I think that our defense spending should grow. In fact, it should grow to 4% of GDP. Right. But I'm saying that within that number, the Navy and the Air Force should be prioritized space. And then the Army comes in behind that because this is not the domain of competition for them at this time. Well, well argued, but, but land grabs are a problem too, Jerry, uh, including with our competitors. Um, you know, there's the issue with Taiwan. Uh, we have Russia uh, engaging in land grabbing, starting with Georgia. Uh, continuing in Ukraine. Um, and of course, there's a threat of uh, tornado allies. I mean, the Baltics are a target. Uh, the Navy can't respond and deter land grabs, can they? Well, sort of the Navy itself cannot, uh, although we can influence uh, operations from offshore, which is really our, our main means of operating. Uh, but oddly enough, the Department of the Navy uh, has its own uh, army in the sense of the United States Marine Corps, which has been specifically trained uh, over the last 70 years looking at Asia Pacific island type situations. 
So if you really wanted to find a force that would be there to support allies like in the Philippines or in Japan, the United States Marine Corps is there. In fact, it's three divisions strong and we maintain a division. Last one on that. So your Marine Corps buddies and the Department of Navy is cheering right now. Uh, they have their mission. The Commandant is, is, is giving you a pat on the back there. But what about the Army? Uh, and particularly, they have a important role in stabilizing and deterring Russian aggression in continental Europe. So they do. Um, that being said, um, I, I do believe, and I've said, and I've written that the army should be focused on the European threat. That being said, I'm not sure that 485,000 troops are required to focus on the European threat. I'm also concerned, and, and go with me on this. I, I think this is a debatable topic. With so much of NATO, 29 nations, not actually investing in their own security to the tune of the 2% of GDP that was settled upon at Wales, the fact that our large army in many ways has become an excuse for them to underinvest because they feel so secure in the security blanket, the United States Army, and the potential that we will get there in time, they have underinvested in this. I well, think that we have to have an open and mature discussion with Europe that we cannot want their security more than they do. But you are correct. The Army's focus should be on the European threat, specifically on Russia in the East. Yeah, I, but the arguments you make on you know burden sharing, uh, which I agree with, you know, can also be made about the Navy and our allies and partners around the world. I mean, I mean, you can even make an argument that the beneficiary of the U.S. Navy and what it does in terms of securing the commons and uh, and making sure those choke points actually uh, continue to advance global commerce goes to the advantage of Russia and China too. They're all benefiting from it, and they break the rules and exploit it when they need to. So, I mean, there's an element of when you're a global power, others are gonna are, are gonna benefit. Uh, I'll take that point. I'll make one other point and then I'll move on. Although I'll give you a chance. So I don't get the last word, which would make me an gracious host. <laughs> but, you know, when you think about the army and, and learning from history, as you know, your book certainly uh, encouraged all of us to, to learn from the past. The size of the army is something that was a huge issue when we were dealing in relatively small contingencies like Iraq and Afghanistan. And the notion that somehow, you know, the number of 485,000 is sufficient when that was not sufficient, truly not sufficient to carry out an, uh, an Iraq or an Afghanistan uh, scenario makes me somewhat concerned that uh, we should be uh, comfortable with that number when dealing with a resurgent Russia. So valid point. Uh, I think that the you, you, your argument is based upon an assumption that in hindsight, we look back and say Iraq and Afghanistan were well-executed campaign plans or well-executed strategies for how the United I'm States- not, That's not my assumption. I'm just saying that they were small. Yep. So, so, and again, the point here is on a rotational basis, depending on, you know, so how many divisions do you want to put into Europe? Do you want to rotate a division through at any given time? Well, at this point in time, the army is down to what? Eight divisions of 15,000 with two heavy divisions with the first armored at, at Fort Hood. The fact is, is I think that you have to right size against your threat. And at this, you know, we simply cannot hold a large capacity army. I mean, the Constitution says raise and support an army. The army is an episodic um, aspect of our national <laughs> government where the Navy is to be provided and maintained because of the nature of the U.S. Constitution. All right. Well, I mean, there we go. Now we're going to debate the Constitution. And, and, and <laughs> you know, uh, Justice Scalia is looking at the originalism offered by Henry Hendricks, Jerry Hendricks here. 
Um, we're going to end this debate, but one I want to continue offline, enjoyable for me, perhaps not, and you, I suspect. I wonder if our listeners have, yep. have all disappeared. Um, let, let's go on to um, a discussion about China. And instead of talking, as we have, about you know, scenarios uh, and where the Navy uh, should be present and how it could deter uh, Chinese aggression, talk to me specifically about Taiwan and uh, Admiral Davidson's uh, recent testimony before the Congress saying that, you know, a Taiwan-type scenario could play out in the near future here. Uh, how serious is this? And what should we be doing in terms of posturing ourselves to send the message to the Chinese that a free Taiwan is not negotiable and the trade coming from Taiwan is something that uh, cannot be uh, interfered with? So I think that those statements that you just made are, are statements that we should be stating and, and repeating often, that a free Taiwan is non-negotiable and that trade is important uh, to us and to the region coming from Taiwan. The fact of the matter is, is that looking at significant uh, trends, whether it's in demographics or whether it's economics or whether it's military power, uh, the fact is, is that China is come, we're, we're entering into a window of vulnerability with conflict with China. Um, their one-child policy is going to impose a bill upon them beginning in the 2030s. The Chinese understand that if they're going to become a great power, a great nation on a global scale, that has to happen now. And they've tied the definition of that great power status to them reclaiming you know, these vital core issues like Taiwan. And so in many ways, Xi Jinping has sort of set the, a ball in motion that he in many ways cannot control at this point in time, which is one of the reasons why I think that Admiral Davidson's statement about the potential for conflict over Taiwan within the next six years uh, may be even a, a, a bit slow. Uh, I have serious concerns that uh, China will, will not risk another American election prior to Taiwan's situation uh, being handled or at least uh, brought to fruition. Uh, that's, they, so that's, that's before 2024 is your point. Yes. What does that look like? And I'll, you know, uh, Misha Oslin, who I suspect is uh, yes. uh, someone known to you, perhaps a friend, a friend of ours, uh, has a, a fictional treatment of, of a Taiwan scenario where uh, we lose a carrier. And as a result, Taiwan essentially freaks out. And without China firing a shot, they essentially annex Taiwan. Well, there's, there's a very large contingent within Taiwan itself that wants closer ties uh, with the mainland. There's a lot of people that go back and forth. There's a lot of business between Taiwan and the mainland. Um, and so there's a lot of people that don't want this to go to war that are in Taiwan and in China. Um, they're looking for the negotiated peace, as it were. There are other parts, including the ruling government now, that wants to move more and more, I think, towards Taiwan independence and recognition of them, them as an independent country, a free country. And, and in many ways, Taiwan makes a lie of so much of Beijing's arguments about central authoritarian power and sort of centrally controlled economies. You have essentially a, a Chinese people democratic, democratically ruled with a vibrant technological economy. And so China is sort of embarrassed to have Taiwan out there. China ideally would like to have Taiwan reabsorbed peacefully. But the fact of the matter is, is if they press on this, if China presses, communist China presses on Taiwan, then I think that we are compelled to come to their aid. And that could flash very badly. 
I'm not sure that we are adequately prepared, that the Navy is prepared, that the Air Force is prepared. Uh, it's a very long distance to get there to provide support, but it's something where our credibility is on the line as well as other allies and partners in the region. It is a situation that is fraught with danger and it would be best if our government was making very strong statements now so that everyone understood that the globe after a Taiwan invasion looks nothing like the globe today, whether that's economically or militarily or diplomatically, China does not want this war. So it could flash badly uh, is, is, is your assessment, which I take to mean we could lose. Certainly there would be lives lost um, and, 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 and huge amounts of resources spent uh, for an uncertain outcome. That's what I take uh, what you mean by flash badly. Um, what let about- me one, Let me make one point about this. Part of that flash badly is it's gonna flash badly for the Chinese communists themselves. Their one child policy, and they, they have a, a core culture that is based upon the idea of the survival of the family and the family line. When those one child uh, people who are now active duty in the military, when they start coming home in coffins or not coming home at all because of ships sunk at sea, this will be inherently destabilizing to the Chinese internal domestic politic. Um, and so this would be destabilizing to them as well as destabilizing to the West, which is why they don't want this to happen if they really thought it through. Well, what about the American point of view? I mean, you just took, took us through the Chinese mindset uh, or view of it. Why should Americans care about Taiwan? What's the argument you can make? There's a lot of discussion right now uh, amongst people who are kind of more in the public intellectual realm, who are not, you know, security expert or naval expert like yourself, who are opining on this. And, and they are trying to draw this line saying, hey, the United States doesn't need to enter a conflict over Taiwan. Yeah, and so again, I think this comes back to the understanding that we are a nation that's a product of the Enlightenment, that we stand not just for ourselves as a, as, a, as a people, but we stand here as a culture of freedom. And so where freedom is snuffed out, are, are vanquished, uh, then we are damaged ourselves at home. We are here to promote the, the growth and the expansion of freedom worldwide, which is why you know, things like what happened in Hong Kong touch us, you know, sort of at our core heart because we see a free people struggling to be free. Taiwan is a larger case in, in, in point. And if you see places where authoritarian powers are vanquishing free people, then that damages who we are, you know, in our core identity. And I think that this is the thing that we need to kind of come to grips with. Those people who say, well, I'm not sure it's really worth the sacrifice or it's a long way away, you know, to me, and again, I, I, I hate when we get into a situation that every bad situation goes to Hitler, but to me, this, this sort of has this, this echo of impeasement. And when we had conversations about the Sudetenland, and at what point in time do you say no to authoritarian powers when they are pressing outward? Because we see that those appetites, if they're not, that they're not suppressed, will simply grow over time. Can't you make the same argument for what's going on in Hong Kong? We've Yes, this administration and this administration, you know, are, are simply allowing that national security law uh, to be imposed. And it's been the biggest regression in, in, in human freedom, you know, in a, in a generation what's happened there. Uh, I, I, I have made that argument. And I look at Hong Kong and then I roll back and I, I look at what happens with the Uyghurs 
and what's happened in Tibet and, and all these things. I look at Chinese aggression. And by the way, I say the same thing about the Russians in Georgia, in Crimea, and in, in portions of the Ukraine today. Um, these are areas where I think that we as a free nation have to stand uh, and, and push back, whether that's diplomatically, economically through sanctions, or even militarily through military exercises and demonstrations. You have to come out in support of freedom. And, and quite frankly, you know, to come back uh, to, you know, the sign behind you. These are some of the lessons that Ronald Reagan taught us in my youth. Yeah, well, absolutely. You know, the values driven piece is, is, is a huge part, but perhaps not sufficient. I mean, um, we'll go to, you know, defending Taiwan and, and, and a potential conflict in Taiwan, yet we'll participate in Olympics with all U.S. businesses, uh, you know, supporting uh, uh, a Beijing run Olympics, despite as you mentioned, what's happened in Hong Kong, not to mention the camps uh, for, for where, where Uyghurs are, are, are detained. I mean, there's so much going on, which we seem to be tolerating. To me, the concern is that suggests we will also tolerate Chinese aggression in Taiwan. Uh, that's correct. And in fact, you know, one of the things I, I recently said in, a, in another uh, conversation publicly is that you know, I think that China right now wants to calm down the conversation about Taiwan until they get past their Winter Olympics. They want to have the 2022 Olympics, and then quite frankly, the window of threat opens right after that, much like what happened with Russia in their Olympics, and then what they did with Georgia. They got past the international show where they were able to gain prestige and the business and the money that goes with an Olympics. But the moment they get on the other side of that, that's when they feel free to let the horses run as it, are, as it were. And I'm really concerned that what happens in 2023 and 2024 vis-a-vis -vis Taiwan, I think those are windows of vulnerability for us. One more subject I want to jump into before we go to lightning round. Um, another point of view, which resides both on the Democratic side and the Republican side is stop the forever wars, stop the endless conflicts. Let's go ahead and rebuild at home. And uh, the Biden administration is certainly devoting resources to that end. If all of their proposals come forward, it could be during this administration's first 200 days, over $6 trillion spent. A chunk of that, roughly uh, $2.3 trillion, uh, will be focused on infrastructure. You're somebody who's uh, made the argument in the pages of the Wall Street Journal that some of that infrastructure Funding should be focused on national defense. To date, none of that funding focuses on national security. Perhaps semiconductors is the one exception. Take us through the argument. Well, I mean, when I started hearing the conversation about infrastructure, which, by the way, I mean, we've been hearing about for the last five years. I mean, every week of the Trump administration seemed to be infrastructure week, or at least the, uh, the promise of an infrastructure week. And I was for that. I mean, I'm, I'm for the idea of recapitalizing roads, bridges, uh, you know, highways and so on. That being said, some portion of infrastructure should go to the nation's shipbuilding and port facilities. We have allowed our shipbuilding industry in this country to decline precipitously over the last 40 years, quite frankly, beginning in the Reagan administration when we pulled subsidies from shipbuilding in, in sort of an ode to the free market, the global free market. Well, we, in that time, we've gone from being the largest shipbuilding nation in the world to being almost dead last amongst major industrial powers. And China and Japan, South Korea, and many nations in Europe 
who continue to do these subsidies is, is still out there and they Jerry, dominate. You're a free trader. Isn't that just comparative advantage and what happens with uh, free trade? So one of the things- Why are you happens, departing from, from your free trade bona fides? Because I'm looking at the defense industrial base and our ability to generate capacity in a wartime environment. We've allowed it to decline so much now. And I'll, I'll use the classic example. 2017, we had the two collisions, the USS John McCain and the Fitzgerald had these collisions at sea. We brought them home, we put them into repair yards. We had so little repair capacity in the United States that it actually took longer to repair those ships than it did to build those ships. So we have to find some way of recapitalizing both ship building and ship repair. Because if you think you're gonna to go to war with China and not have ships damaged that you need repaired, then we're probably thinking about that long. So I look at this infrastructure bill and say, some portion of that. What's the sticker so, tag? What's the some portion? So the, the sum cost portion right now is being talked is about 25 billion within that. So that's 25 billion over a fit up. I think it actually should be larger. I think it should be about 40 billion over the fit up. 25 to $50 billion. 40 billion. Over a five year period, Jerry. And um, would there be a commercial component here or is this something that the taxpayer will just have to continue to pay for year over no. year? So absolutely, you have to have a commercial portion uh, part of this because we need to recapitalize our military sea lift command. And that would actually give us an incentive to restart, pump start the, uh, the, our civilian shipbuilding industry. And then I think we have to look at some, I mean, we become an export nation again. We started to export uh, oil and natural gas uh, in the last administration. As you start looking at export nation, those exports should be going at least some portion on US bottoms. And those civilian ships then become a component of your, your military logistics fleet in a time of war. U.S. Transportation Command in uh, St. Louis is looking for help to recapitalize the major logistics fleet of the Navy or the nation. And, and I think that this infrastructure bill is part Any of Any sign of the Biden administration or the Congress going to put some funds for shipbuilding? Absolutely. In fact, there's bipartisan support right now. You have uh, Senator uh, Wicker of Mississippi and Senator Kane of Virginia. You also have Congressman Gallagher of Wisconsin and Congressman Luria, Democrat of Virginia. Navy. So we're seeing bipartisan support bring this forward for the infrastructure bill. The Department of Navy of the U.S. House of Representatives uh, do, doing their part. We have just about a minute or two left. Great conversation, uh, super insights, fun debates. Uh, Reagan lightning round. Dr. Jerry Hendricks. Share with us your favorite Reagan book, favorite Reagan speech, and or favorite Reagan quote. All right, so two books, uh, The Education of Ronald Reagan, uh, The GE Years by uh, Tom Evans. A great book looking at Reagan's intellectual development. Uh, also, uh, Robert Mann's book, Becoming Ronald Reagan, The Rise of Conservative Icon, is something I have on my shelf. Again, I think Reagan is an intellectual giant in the sense of he arrives at his own sense of conservatism during these critical years when he's doing the GE uh, speech tours. Um, so my favorite speech of his is probably the boys of Point du Hoc. It's just eloquent. It really summons us all to be something greater than ourselves, recognizing the majesty of history. I also have a soft spark for the speech that he gave after the Challenger explosion. He really wrapped his arms around the country and took us into his embrace. A beautiful, beautiful speech. I already talked about my favorite quote from him about freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. I also, I mean, I've got the, the paperweight back behind me, you know, peace through strength is common, you know, constantly reiterated uh, need to invest in our defense if we want to maintain peace in the world. 
Um, and, and so, yeah, those, those are the wow. my takes on Reagan. A tour de force for the lightning round, two books, two speeches and two quotes. Dr. Jerry Hendricks, uh, wonderful to have you. We look forward to having you back on the Reaganism podcast in the not too distant future. My pleasure. And I look forward to coming back. <laughs>